today. By the way, I, it dawned on me, we didn't plan it this way, but we have an almost all Latino band. Uh, Arturo's from Mexico, even though he's got red hair. Uh, Ram is from Tel Aviv, Israel. So yes, yes. Thank our band. Yeah, thank you guys. Great. Well, my name is Eric. I'm the campus pastor here at Gateway in South Austin. We're so glad that you're here. If you're new to us, you've stepped into an incredibly welcoming place where we love everyone life by life. That means you're important to us. And so welcome. We're so glad that you'd spend this morning with us today. I am uh, excited about next week as we conclude this series. It's called Working With All Your Heart. I'll be sharing a message along with, you'll get to hear a story from Lindsay Ronga. Lindsay was a CEO in New York City for Gary Vee and his company, and she was actually written about in the Harvard Business Review, and she quit. She was on the top of the world on the outside and dying on the inside. And so I know you'll be challenged and encouraged by that message next week. But today we're going to hear from Phil Wright. He's one of our overseers. And we had such a great response after the first service. I know you're going to be encouraged. In fact, tonight he's coming to speak live at our evening service. If you enjoy uh, his message or know people that you want to hear it, bring them back with you tonight. But it is a great example of how we can move God to the center of our life. If you've ever been worried about money, and maybe that time is now, if you've ever uh, been a business owner and worried about people's jobs, and again, maybe that time is now, if you've ever struggled with anxiety, I know this message will encourage you. So listen with an open heart and open mind as we listen to Phil Wright. It's great to be with you to continue our series, Working With All Your Heart. You know, back in the day when I was working at a produce company, unloading trainloads of 100-pound sacks of potatoes, my notion of a CEO was kind of a, of a villainous character, maybe somebody like Felonius Gru, who had armies of minions that ran around trying to help him line his pockets. But... In October of 2001, when I was named president and CEO of my company, you might say that my point of view shifted pretty radically. It felt an awful lot like uh, being made pilot in command of a 747, and you walk into the cockpit, and there's all those instruments and gauges, and you feel the weight of the responsibility to get 175 souls that are in the back of the plane safely home. And if you pay attention to the instruments and carefully follow the flight plan, communicate with air traffic control, and everybody arrives safely. But if you neglect one thing or you overlook something important like uh, too severe weather, and that plane goes down. And I felt the weight of that when I got that job. For me, it was never about the title. Uh, really, it wasn't. <laughs> promise. Uh, it was about running an enterprise that created quality jobs for like 7,000 people across the globe so that they had a shot at making their dreams become real. 
I love hearing stories about families that were able to send their kids to college, maybe for the first time in the history of their family, or they were able to retire while they were still healthy and young enough. Um, I love all those stories, and yet as a leader worth his salt, I had to uh, insist that our people work hard to deliver the right results, and they did. But I wanted those results in the right way, and for me that meant modeling and insisting on absolute integrity. Our businesses were turning in record performance, but I was growing very, very concerned. You see, I got that job, for those of you old enough to remember, one month after planes crashed into the World Trade Center on 9-11 and shook our country to the core. Beyond the tragic human toll, uh, more people died that day than the attack on Pearl Harbor. The aftermath severely crippled the financial markets. Our stock price got hammered. We went from a high of about $53 a share down to less than $25 a share at the start of 2011. I'm sorry, 2002. The, the freeze that occurred in the capital markets was particularly problematical for us because we had a debt package that had maturity dates coming through the month of July on July 7, the 31st and August 1st respectively. And just think, it's like if the bank called you up and said tomorrow, hey, we're either going to have to work something out or you owe me all that money on your mortgage or your car loan. And so we had $2.5 billion of unsecured credit and two debt payments totaling $800 million that were coming due for our long-term debt on July 31st and August 1st, respectively. Basically owed a ton of money and we had to pay it back by deadlines or renegotiate the terms to keep the company running. I felt the weight of protecting people's paychecks, their 401ks, and in this financial storm, I worried about all the things that were essential to keeping a $30 billion enterprise running through these uncharted economic waters. <clears throat> and there were storm clouds out there. Harvard Business Review described it as the perfect storm. Again, for those of you old enough to remember, the dot-com bubble had just burst. There were multiple bankruptcies across major telecommunications companies and major energy companies. And for my company, in April of 2002, we had a collision with a chain reaction of events that were too numerous for me to mention here, but the net of it was the credit ratings agencies who advise you on whose bonds you should buy and the quality, or not whose you should buy, but the quality of those investments downgraded us from investment grade to deep junk. And when that happened, our stock price understandably plummeted like a rock in a tank down to 78 cents a share. If it had stayed there for longer than a week, we would have been delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. Real talk, I knew I needed to be strong but a lack of confidence was in invading my sleep and robbing me of my peace of mind. I related to what the psalmist described in Psalm 42, 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. I felt that overwhelmed. And in Psalm 46, 2, 
Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, and the chaos around me felt like mountains were falling into the sea and the earthquakes were happening left and right. I was exhausted, lonely, anxious, scared, but strangely secure. I was confronted with consequences that had potentially really grave consequences, and I had to confront a cycle that we all face in our circumstances, in our workplace, in our relationships. Our beliefs give birth to thoughts. Those thoughts energize our feelings, and our feelings animate our actions and decisions. If I focused on the cataclysmic events that were going on all around us and believed that the situation was impossible, I could have thought, you know, all these senior advisors that we've hired are way smarter than me, and they say we should take bankruptcy. They say it's a safe way out. I might have felt calmer if I had advocated to my board. I might have made weak-kneed recommendations and acted for lesser things and advocated bankruptcy. But that would have covered our fannies and the fannies of our directors as officers, uh, but it would have wiped out our shareholders, the largest group of which was our own employees. So what was the antidote? I needed to get really clear that I had the power to choose to believe something better. Our beliefs that internal narrative we have, those stories we tell ourselves, form the basis for our actions. And so I began to meditate on the Word of God. Deuteronomy 30:19 helped me to pause and be deliberate about my choices. It says, today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh that you would choose life so that you and your descendants may live. I had the power to choose, as John taught us a few weeks ago, to focus on and trust in the source of my strength, my, my experiences with God, and risk fighting for the survival of the company, blessing of our people and the communities we served, protecting our shareholders and lenders, our internal narrative, those stories we tell ourselves, have incredible power either for us or over us. So let's see how this played out in a familiar Bible story. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and God, through a series of breathtaking miracles, had led them to the point where they're just ready to start claiming the promised land, the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read in Numbers 13, 1 and 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Send out for yourself men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each of their father's tribes send one man who is a leader, footnote, an influencer, among them. So Moses sends them out with some instructions on what he wants them to explore, and he gave them two final words, Be courageous and bring back some fruit. I guess he wanted a fruit salad. Forty days later, they came back and they brought some fruit, cluster of grapes so big two guys had to carry it, and this report, Numbers 13, 27 through 28. Yeah, we went to the land to which you sent us, and indeed, it's flowing with milk and honey. Nevertheless, 
The people living there are strong and the cities are fortified. Message, no vacancies over there. Let's go back to Egypt. So what did they believe? Well, it's not clear, but the story they chose was not to believe God. Maybe they chose to believe themselves more, and they focused on the size of their problem, not what they had just seen God do. They said, ooh, there's big people there, and maybe even Anakites, giants. You think they might have been exaggerating? That's a clear symptom of being led by feelings. And don't get me wrong, feelings of fear were understandable. God gives us our emotions, and they're not inherently wrong. They're healthy when they're managed. They protect us. But the mistake was letting their feelings dominate and be supreme, to trump rational thought, to obscure what they had seen and experienced from God. Joshua and Caleb could have gone along with the crowd, but they Caleb stepped up. Numbers 13.30 says, Then Caleb quieted the people, simmer down, before Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of this land, for we can certainly conquer it. Caleb based his beliefs on how he had experienced God. His beliefs birthed thoughts. He rehearsed God activity in his own life. Hey, we've been freed from a cruel oppressor after 400 years. I just walked through the Red Sea. And he made this choice. I may be afraid, but I choose to believe God. And please hear me, friends. When we're afraid, when we're uncertain, we can all make the choice of what we rehearse in our minds and master those stories we tell ourselves. He had feelings, yeah. He, f he felt those feelings, but he dealt with them. And he animated brave action to speak the truth and love to his fellows, to urge them to follow God, but they just wouldn't have it. They were totally blinded by their feelings. They rehearsed their fears. They ruminated to the point that they fomented each other into inciting a mutiny to stone Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. It's astonishing and just sad that the same people that walked with Caleb and Joshua through the Red Sea were now saying, let's go back to slavery. God was understandably angry. He gave them what they asked for. He said, go follow your own way. And I can tell you, when I followed my own way, that was a bad decision. I don't know about any of you guys, but it was bad for me. And they were in the desert for 40 years, one year for every day they were gone on that exploratory mission. And they didn't get to taste the promised land. They died in the desert. Clearly, our internal narratives hold much power. Wisely, Caleb and Joshua chose life. They focused on the amazing ways they'd experienced God, and they were ultimately rewarded, and both ended up in the promised land. So now back to July of 2002. I had a battle going on inside me with internal voices, self-doubts. I was often tempted to say, hey, these are uncharted waters. We've never been here before. These smart guys are telling you to file for bankruptcy. Just pull a ripcord and do it. Sometimes I would hear these things like, you shouldn't be here. It's a fluke. You're not qualified to do this job. You don't have what it takes. But I chose to turn my eyes away from all the storm and the chaos 
and throughout each day review personal God experiences in my own life. I remember in college when God literally saved my life. I was a self-proclaimed atheist flying in a single-engine plane with an inexperienced pilot, and he flew us into a thunderstorm. The runway wasn't visible, and if that wasn't bad enough, all of a sudden the engine stopped. And as I watched the propeller windmilling, I looked over to see the pilot scrambling to try to restart the engine. And I prayed to the God I had turned my back on. And I said, okay, you got my attention, Lord. If you will get me on the ground, I promise I will give my life to you. Seconds later, the engine roared to a start. And I kid you not, that thunderhead pulled back over, over the runway just enough to see it. Pilot landed the plane, immediately got out toward the cowling off, ripped out the fuel line, found a plastic plug in the fuel line. He said, I don't know how that engine started. And I go, I got a pretty good idea. I remembered March of 1993 in my company when we had firm obligations that fixed prices to supply natural gas to customers all the way from Louisiana to New York City and an unexpected cold snap uh, hitting in March froze up all the gas wells along the Gulf Coast that we were counting on for supply. Prices shot up immediately by a factor of 50 from $2 a unit to $100 a unit. Our competitors took out clauses in their contracts with their customers, uh, so-called force majeure, but it was really price majeure. They just didn't want to pay what it took. We chose to honor every contract and paid whatever it took to get those supplies. Psalm 15 describes the righteous man as the man who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And let me just tell you, it hurt a lot. We lost $30 million in the month of July, or of March, excuse me. But we saw God honor our commitment to integrity really fast. The following month, all those competitors' customers, not all, but most, that heard what we did when we stepped up, gave us their business for the month of April, and we made $60 million in profits, double what we had lost in March. And I kept thinking in this time and, and rehearsing this thought that maybe the most miraculous of all is the way that God took an abused, scared kid, too often left to fend for himself, struggling in school and in life, whose brother, very accomplished and brilliant, constantly reminded him, oh, you're too stupid to amount to anything, and opened a door for me to go into the best management development program in the industry, which paved the way to bring me where I stood at that moment. It was nothing short of miraculous. I'd seen God help me through what looked like the impossible before, and I chose to trust he would help me now. I began to tear down those self-doubts and replace it with the word of God. I read passages like this, as an eagle stirs up its nest, and hovers over its young, he spread his wings to catch them and carry them on his pinions. 
And I chose to believe God put me there, maybe for such a time as this. And if he pushed me out of my comfort zone nest, he would catch me. I formed a prayer group. And each day, we'd see a looming crisis. We'd pray for the protection of our employees, for the good of the company, and our lenders and our shareholders. But sometimes storms don't let up. After that credit downgrade I mentioned to you, our vendors and counterparties that we did business with said, we love you guys, but we got to have cash up front or letters of credit to keep doing business with you. And those demands amounted to $2.5 billion, just like that. And remember, we had those two big debt payments coming due, totaling $800 million at the end of the month. And we only had $500 million of cash in the company. Now, that may sound like a lot of money, but an incredibly complex number of things had to go flawlessly, or we would have burned through that money in about a week. 2002, in July was chaos on steroids. It, it was heartbreaking to me to think about all those people's paychecks, their savings at risk, that their hopes might be dashed, that my company's capacity for generosity might get crushed. And the thought of not paying our lenders 100 cents on the dollar and wiping out our shareholders was just revolting to me. As our chief financial officer and general counsel prepared a legally required bankruptcy plan, I presented a plan to our board to survive. It's called Alpha. It's comprised of three deals, and they all were linked together, and they all had to get done at noon Eastern time on July 31st, or we die. It was a billion five in an asset sale, a $900 million loan from Warren Buffett and two other counterparties, and a $1.2 billion secured line of credit. Our other line was unsecured. Think mortgage. They wanted assets underneath that loan. So we worked feverishly on it through July, and the race was on to get to July 31st without somebody dragging us into bankruptcy, and we literally were living day to day. Each day until the wee hours of the morning, we'd have to count the money. It was like having a little cigar box, and you looked into it and see, and I gave direct orders, we'll pay this, we pay this, we pay this, and then we'll wait to pay that until we get a little more money. I rarely came home. I'd shower up in the fitness center, and put on the same clothes, and go back to work the next morning. We were under incredible pressure where people around me were imploding. One of my colleagues on the C-suite was hospitalized. Another nearly had a nervous breakdown. A few nights I did come home, grab a couple hours of sleep, and I'd zip back to work, but I listened to praise and worship music the whole way, and I just soaked it in, and my prayer group was like oxygen to me. One of my sons was in it, and another of my sons had his whole fraternity praying for us. And Vicki, my incredible wife, bear in mind she was under a lot of pressure too, would send me short emails, nothing preachy, just very encouraging, scriptures of encouragement. She started a prayer group at our church that got noticed on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I was so proud of her. Members of our community would drive around our building and pray for us daily. Charitable organizations that we had supported came to our office at the end of business and would cheer for our employees as they went down the escalator to their cars and gave them cookies and they had streamers and signs. Such a morale boost for our folks. And God's unfailing love 
during this period of time, throughout that month, shone like diamonds. His provision fell down like manna. We'd close an asset sale in two days that would normally take about six months. And that would get us through a day or two or a week, depending on the size of it. Miracle after miracle kept us afloat. One customer was brave enough to pay their August bill early for $60 million, and it got us through almost two weeks. We were getting to July 31st on fumes, but we were getting there. But then I got a, a call the night before closing. And we were notified that an advisory bank had pulled out of the lending agreement. And when the other banks said, hey, those are their advisors, they're out. What do they know that we don't know? They were alarmed, understandably. And then one of Buffett's counterparties pulled out of the $900 million loan. And just as it seemed like we were on the glide slope to survive, it now looked like the whole thing was going to crumble. And I was crushed. I got a pager at 2 a.m. Pager, for those of you who don't know, was invented somewhere after the telegraph and the carrier pigeon. Uh, but it, it said I needed to go down to the legal floor and sign some documents. And I thought, you know, am I just going through the motions? This whole thing is going to blow up anyway. And as I got on the elevator, I sensed, I, I've never really heard God's audible voice, but I sensed in my spirit him asking me a question. Do you trust me still? I had to pause, ground myself. Took a breath and said, yes, Lord, I don't know where this is going, but I trust you. Friends, God wants our honest prayers. He knows our fears. So at 2 o'clock in the morning, I went into this lawyer's office, and I, I saw the picture of despair. He had literally gone down at his post from exhaustion, head on his desk, sleeping, ink pen in hand. And that just captured the whole desperation of that moment. I signed the documents, and I went back to my office and began to pray and pray. And about 9 o'clock... On the day of closing, I got word that Buffett and the other counterparty had stepped up for the party who left and were going to put that $900 million loan back on the rails. And then they persuaded, as only he probably can with his big pile of money, the Wayward Bank to come into our lending agreement. And so it looked by 10 o'clock like the Alpha Plan was back on the rails. I was still nervous. Remember, I had a debt payment that I had to deliver by the close of business, the 31st, for $350 bucks, And I could have cut the tension with a knife as the clock melted away. Sending $350 million, most of our cash, without the incoming $3.6 billion of liquidity from the Alpha Plan, would have cost us a 100-year-old company. Late the afternoon of July 31st, I took a deep breath, maybe feeling a little bit like Caleb and Joshua, and said, I might be afraid, but I choose to be courageous and strong. And I told our treasury group, wire the money. And when Buffett's man in Omaha heard me say that, he said, I'm done wire the money. And when the $900 million got wired, 
The guys buying the $1.5 billion assets said, I'm done, wire the money. And there was jubilation in headquarters, people high-fiving and bumping chests and hugging each other and crying. They all went off to a party, but yeah, I was still nervous. So I stuck around to work on the bank loan, which had not closed. About 10 o'clock that night, our general counsel told me, go on home, the deal's gonna close in the morning. And I called Vicki and I said, praise God, and a few other things I'm not gonna share with you, and went home and I slept for about an hour and I got a call, general counsel again. It was a technicality in one of the agreements uh, and uh, the banks weren't gonna close on account of it. I said, well, can we fix it? He said, nah, it had to be done by midnight. And I asked him, I said, does it have to be Eastern time or Central time? He said, after a long pause, the agreement's silent on it. I said, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And Vicky hollered into the phone, tell him 20, tell him 20. I should tell you that drive is normally 30 minutes. <laughs> so in our jammas, Vicky didn't trust me to drive on my own being that sleep deprived. We rushed to headquarters, up the elevator. I signed the corrected documents and we began feeding them into the fax machine and it jammed, I kid you not. So we prayed and prayed and the fax machine began to whir. The documents got sent and the banks closed the deal the next morning. The company stabilized, the paychecks were protected as were the 401ks. All debts got paid hundred cents on the dollar and the stock price recovered to a high of $64 a share. Ten years later, Phil and Vicki got to retire from corporate life and found our ministry, Resilient Marriage, where we provide private retreats for pastors, staff, and missionaries on a pro bono basis. The bottom line is, every day we're all confronted with choices, and sometimes decisions can be scary and overwhelming, and each of us has to choose, will my thoughts spiral down from a focus on the size of my problem? trusting in unreliable people or strategies. My thoughts feed feelings of hopelessness and despair and lead to animating me to do lesser things, regrettable actions. I invite you instead to let your thoughts be born from a belief in and a trust in the God who has been my shepherd all the days of my life. Jesus has been there for me in my rebellion, through my painful valleys, times that I felt totally inadequate, filling my inability with his endless, magnificent power. Even when life through our lens looks hopeless, we can find hope in him. He is the only completely reliable source of strength and hope. Yeah, isn't that great? I think one of the things I, I hope you heard in there was this ability to, to move God to the center of our life and guide us through the ups and downs. Now, it makes sense, perhaps, to pray when you're about to crash in the plane. But what if we were to invite God into how we live at work, the decisions we make, at home, in our neighborhood, amongst our friends, our extended family. 
If you aren't already doing this, I encourage you to go to gatewaychurch.com slash digging deeper, and you can take this message as we do every week and, and take it to that next level to discuss the passages with your roommates, your family, your community group, to really apply this to your life. One of the things I thought was so important of what he shared was how we can replace that negative self-talk with what's true. And what's true is what we can find in the scriptures and what we can sing and worship. And so I hope you're encouraged by that. And I want to just invite you during this next song called Hallelujah Here Below to practice that. During this song, I want you to ask God to speak to you, to show you your next step, to show you things in your life you need to surrender, things that you've allowed to have a negative view about. But when you sing the word hallelujah, you're actually singing the idea of praise God, praise the Lord. You're declaring what's true, that God can be thanked no matter how bad things might get, no matter what circumstances may be like. We can have a faith bigger than our circumstances. So I want to invite you in this moment to stand with us, connect with God during the song, and let's sing together. <laughs> 